into the cloud. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So we're we're jumping back in First Corinthians, guys. We're almost done. So thank you guys for your patience. Um, for those of you, for those of you that have been joining us for semi recently, we've been actually going through Second uh, First Corinthians for like two and a half years. So. I think this might be the third year <laughs> that we're doing it. And so we're almost done. We're almost done, guys. We're, we've got a chapter and a half left. Um, and so um, to reward you with your patience, I'm going to have you guys turn <laughs> to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, but uh, you guys will see soon enough that this is going to be somewhat of a uh, pretty controversial passage. And so um, I've, I've actually... Um, this isn't actually the first time that we've talked about a passage like this in First Corinthians. It's uh, we've actually talked about it before in First Corinthians chapter eleven. And uh, if you find that my uh, my explanation for tonight's message isn't satisfactory enough, you can refer back to my message on First Corinthians chapter eleven uh, on our website. That is available um, in our sermons and resources uh, tab. But um, all right, I think we're. We're there in chapter 14. All right, this is what, uh, this is what God's word says. Um, we'll start in uh, the second half of verse 33. It says, this is what the apostle Paul says. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, uh, the women should keep silent in the churches for they're not per permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word. Let me pray for us one more time before we get started. Father, we do ask for your help. Um, this is a very challenging passage, not just for the students, but also for me, even as I consider it. And so, Father, we ask for, even now, uh, humility, um, a, a reverence for your word, a, um, a uh, desire to uh, put ourselves under submission to the scriptures. And, uh, and so, Father, we, we seek your help. We thank you. And we love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, another opening question for you guys. Um, what has been your morning routine been lately? Uh, for me, um, my mor morning routine the past few months uh, has been waking up at 6.30 in the morning, uh, which is surprising for me because I normally wake up fairly late, but for the past three months, we've been, Megan and I have been consistently waking up at 6.30 in the morning. But uh, right when I wake up at 6.30 in the morning, I grab my phone to look at the news. I check the stock market, uh, delete all the spam that I get, every morning my email. And at around 6.45, I, I finally get up, make coffee for Megan and I, and uh, we go on a walk for about 30 minutes around our neighborhood. And when we come back, it's only 7.30. And, uh, and so I brush my teeth, wash my face, uh, read my Bible and pray and start work at nine. All the while wearing the same outfit that I've been wearing since March, 2020. Um, I haven't washed any of my clothes since, I'm just kidding, I have. Um, and I also don't wear the same outfit every day. Um, but this has been my normal two and a half hour uh, routine and habit that I perform almost every morning uh, for the past few months. And believe it or not, um, we spend most of our mornings and days driven by habit and routine without actually con consciously thinking about it. And while our everyday habits and, and routines reveal who we are, 
Um, at the same time, um, our daily habits and practices also shape who we are too. Um, when you get up for school or work or, or church, there are specific habits and routines that you participate in. Uh, maybe the first thing that you do as you as your eyelids uh, open is like me, you grab your phone, turn the alarm clock off, you check your Instagram, uh, scroll through the news. Maybe for others of you, uh, you jump straight into the shower. And maybe for others of you, uh, you don't leave the comfort of your warm bed at all. And you just roll up to, to school in, in your jammies and, uh, and you're just comfortable in bed. Uh, whatever it is, every single one of us live in daily routines that not only reveal our worship, but also shape our worship too. Uh, to put a more religious spin on it, uh, the daily routines, habits, and conscious or not choices that we make constitutes what's called a daily liturgy. It's the daily stuff that we do every day that we consciously or not do uh, without even thinking about it. And so if you think about it, the individual actions and choices that you make up uh, a collective picture, a story, if you will of who you are. If you examine all that you do in one morning alone, you might get a glimpse, but if you examine all that you do in an entire week, you might get a fuller picture. And so when you do, what do you see? What I've found is that every time I wake up at 6.30 in the morning, what I've done in the past several months, before I do anything else, before I say good morning to Megan, before I thank God for the morning, I reach for my phone and turn on my, my stock brokerage account to check how much money I earned that morning. By reaching for my smartphone every morning, just that small five-minute act every morning, I had developed a daily ritual that trained me to believe that my God was my money, that what sustained me through the night wasn't God, but my finances, which ironically isn't mine, but really God's anyway. Regardless of my profession of faith, even as a, not just as a Christian, but, uh, or not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, my daily ritual not only revealed my heart, but it was also actively shaping my heart as well. And all, all I thought about the entire day was whether my portfolio was red or green. And so all of a sudden, we realize that the daily choices, decisions, and sometimes unconscious habits that we actually do matters. It's not, it isn't only what we do that matters, but also how we do it as well. And this is exactly the Apostle Paul's point as we look at these last eight verses of chapter 14. As we'll see soon enough, the main point of our passage tonight isn't, exact, it isn't actually about gender roles or, um, or, or roles in the church necessarily, but how, about how we worship the church. And so God cares just as much about how we worship as he does about what we worship. And so our key idea for our passage tonight is that as, as people centered on Jesus, the Messiah, we care about how we worship because God cares about how we worship. And so this message is broken up into, again, two parts. Um, the first part, as you guys can probably guess, is the longest and the second will be the shortest. But the first point is God cares about our distractions. God cares about our distractions. Now take a look at perhaps some of the most controversial verses in all of the Apostle Paul's writings. Um, and it actually, all, almost all of the Apostle Paul's most controversial writings happen to actually be in 1 Corinthians. So I don't know why I chose to do that to myself or to you guys, but uh, here we are. Um, we, we wrestle with scripture. But uh, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything that they desire to learn, let them, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Uh, there's, a, there's an episode of, uh, of Parks and Rec where uh, it's probably one of my favorite, um, I guess, show to, to quote from, but uh, where, where city councilor Leslie Nope uh, one of the main characters is upset at the lack of gender diversity at work. And we find out that as a woman, Leslie is not allowed to reserve 
conference rooms for meetings without the signature of her husband or her father. Um, and so she brings that up to her boss. She's not happy with that kind of policy. She brings it, her, she brings it up to her boss, Chris, and he allows her to set up a meeting called the, the Equal Gender Employment Commission uh, to balance out the lack of ladies who work in city government. And so when, when Leslie and Chris attend that meeting, uh, not one woman is invited to participate in the meeting on gender equality employment. And in shock, uh, Chris says, I am part of the problem. Now, as we kind of listen to the story, is this what's happening in these verses? Is, is the Apostle Paul reinforcing what, was been, what has been a problem since the beginning, beginning of time? What, is, what does the Apostle Paul mean in these three verses? Now, one of the many questions that I think arises out of this evening's text is how are Christians to think and act in light of all the abuses, the inconsistencies, and the dismissiveness that we see being exposed in toxic masculinity? And on the other hand, how are Christians to also think and act in light of the modern feminist movement? And if being created in the image of God means that men and women are created equal, what does this equality actually mean? And as we try to understand these three verses, it even sounds like the Apostle Paul is reinforcing and perpetuating certain unhelpful uh, cultural stereotypes. And so what is Paul exactly saying here? Now, as you can imagine, this passage has been debated, uh, interpreted, and squeezed in all sorts of ways. And I can give you all the positions and all the data, but I don't want to. And I don't think you guys would benefit from that anyway. I think you guys would all be super bored. So first, I'm going to rule out what Paul obviously is not saying. Okay, I'm going to rule out what Paul is obviously not saying. Um, what Paul isn't commanding, what he's obviously not saying is absolute silence. What Paul isn't saying is that women are to keep silent at all times. In fact, how can he be saying that when in chapter 11, just a couple of chapters earlier, the Apostle Paul allows women to pray and prophesy in public in front of men and women. When in chapter 12, he expects men and women to exercise the gifts that God has given to them to serve one another, not just in their homes, but in the church. When in chapter 14, both men and women play vital roles in building up one another. And so the Apostle Paul couldn't possibly mean absolute silence. And so if it's not absolute silence, then what does Paul actually mean when he says that women should keep silent in the churches? And there are a couple more plausible interpretations of what Paul is saying. None of them are um, completely airtight. And uh, as you'll find, find out soon enough, I don't, actually, I don't actually agree with both of them. Um, the first interpretation says that there were women in the Corinthian church who were publicly shaming and chastising their husbands as the church gathered for worship. And so you can, as you can imagine, this was probably super awkward if, if the whole church service was disrupted because, you know, mom and dad were arguing about something in the middle of the church service. Um, but this is likely not the case uh, because this view is inherently sexist, I think. Uh, it's arbitrary and doesn't really fit with the Apostle Paul's general theology. Why would the Apostle Paul single out all the women when he knows that men are just as guilty as instigating conflict? So that's the first interpretation. Second interpretation, a likelier interpretation of the kind of silence Paul is commanding has to do with what is proper and orderly. So like I mentioned, um, this the focus of this passage isn't actually on gender rules, but on how we worship in the church. These verses aren't meant to be read in isolation from the preceding verses or the following verses. Uh, and so you can usually arrive at a better understanding of any passage in question when you just do a little bit more de detective work by looking at all, but by, by looking at the immediate context. And so what is the immediate context? Well, just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul required that anyone who's making a prophecy needed to have their prophecy weighed and evaluated. 
And then in verse 40, the Apostle Paul closes his chapter by saying, all things should be done decently and in order. And so the context seems to be talking about something done in corporate worship has nothing to do with gender roles specifically. And so this interpretation says that while women were more than welcome to pray, speak in tongues and prophesy, the only thing that women were prohibited from doing was weighing prophecy. This was supposedly, according to the Apostle Paul, improper. But even though this interpretation fits better with the overall context of the passage, I'm not completely sold on it either. Why? Well, first, it seems inconsistent for Paul to allow women to prophesy only for them to not be allowed to weigh other people's prophecies. The law that the Apostle Paul appeals to most likely refers to the creation order and pattern where Adam is created first and then Eve is created after in Genesis chapter 2. But the reference still doesn't really explain exactly why women were allowed to prophesy but couldn't evaluate other people's prophecies. Secondly, uh, another, a second problem, I think, with this interpretation is that other interpreters like to read this passage alongside 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul prohibits women from holding positions of pastoral authority. But there are two problems with this. First, the first is that 1 Timothy was written roughly 7 to 10 years after 1 Corinthians was written. And so we shouldn't read 1 Corinthians through the lens of a much later letter, even though scripture does interpret other parts of scripture. The Corinthians wouldn't have even known about this letter, so it wouldn't, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been relevant, uh, relevant anyway. Plus, Paul's purpose for writing 1 Timothy was served a much different purpose than writing 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul's purpose for writing 1 Timothy was encouraging Timothy and regulating church leadership. But Paul's purpose for, for 1 Corinthians was correcting and regulating church worship. Secondly, reading this passage alongside 1 Timothy chapter 2 doesn't really solve the silence issue. Because even if it is true that the Apostle Paul prohibits women from holding positions of pastoral office and authority, evaluating and weighing prophecy is hardly more authoritative and more pastoral than prophesying itself, which again, the Apostle Paul allowed women to do. So, do you guys know what my answer is? I don't know. That's my answer. I don't really know. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that this was a time-specific and church-specific issue that was more local to the Corinthian church. But beyond that, I genuinely don't know. Um, I, I did my homework. I, I read both sides, but I didn't find either side convincing. And so my answer is, I don't know. Um, for this reason, not that you guys would, but as a rule of thumb, we really shouldn't construct any exhaustive theology or church practice just, because, just from these three verses alone. We should be humble, be willing to be corrected. <laughs> and to hold whatever interpretations that we have loosely. But I, I can imagine some of you guys will be like, okay, well, what's the whole point of this conversation then? Uh, let me just give you guys the point, okay? Even though I don't have an answer uh, on exactly what the Apostle Paul means by silence, thankfully, it doesn't really change how we apply these three verses. Why? Because even if we don't know exactly what Paul meant by silence, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul brings this up. There's something that we actually can know in, in, in Paul's command here. If you'll remember, this is not a passage about gender roles, but about worship, worship in the church. This passage fits within the larger context of worship, more specifically, how we worship, what is proper and orderly and fits church decorum and order. Now, the question is, why does the Apostle Paul feel the need to bring this up then? Is because for whatever reason, the worship of God was being disrupted in church. Somehow, for whatever reason, people were being distracted from worshiping God as they gathered as the church 
And whatever the women in Corinth were doing or weren't doing, it caused enough distraction for it to catch the Apostle Paul's attention. And the, Paul, the point is that the Apostle Paul cares not only about what we worship, but how we worship. Did you guys catch that? The Apostle Paul cares not only about what we worship, namely God, but also how we worship him. How does the Apostle Paul want us to worship him? Well, I, I attended our first uh, live in-person service two weeks ago, and I had to really fight the urge uh, to not look at my phone for the entire hour and a half of service. And I really enjoyed the service. It was really great being there. But I have to confess to you guys, I had a really hard time paying attention in service. Um, something that wouldn't have been a problem for me when we had in-person services prior to the quarantine. But I kid you not, for a good half year, I was definitely doing something else on my phone while the YouTube service was playing in the background. How I worshiped God regularly on Sundays at home actually shaped how I actually worshiped him when I finally went back to our church building two weeks ago. My attention span was shorter. The service felt longer. I wanted to be entertained and I couldn't wait to leave. And what I've realized from this passage, the application for you guys is that how we go to school and interact with people digitally is not like how we worship God digitally, even though the mediums are the same, even though school and church are mediated through screens. Somehow we think that the attitude we have towards school is an acceptable attitude that we have toward God. Now, just to be clear, God doesn't demand that we worship him perfectly, but that we don't worship him flippantly, okay? God doesn't demand that we worship him perfectly, but that we don't worship him flippantly. God cares when you show up 20 minutes after youth group starts because it demonstrates something about what you think about youth group and worship, that as long as you don't miss the message time, then you're good. But that reveals a very superficial understanding of worship. Worship is more than the sermon. Worship is more than just information. Worship is, is meeting together. It is singing together. Worship, in fact, is your entire life. And so don't get, me, don't get me wrong. God calls us to come as we are. We come to God in our messiness and brokenness. In fact, that pretty much sums up who we are now until the day that we died. We are messed up people. There is no need to fix or clean ourselves up. We can come to God freely and openly with burdened and distracted hearts. There's no need to leave our distractions and burdens at the door of our worship. The only requirement to come to God is desperation and need. There's no need to perform. Jesus calls the burdened and the heavy laden to come. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus comes not for the righteous, but for the sinner. But at the same time, this does not mean that we have permission from God to come to him with a lax and flippant attitude. Because to do so is to still come to God on your own terms and not on his. God welcomes messiness, absolutely. But let our messiness actually be serious. God absolutely welcomes joy, but let our joy actually be serious. The reason why the Apostle Paul was so concerned about something so trivial as regulating speech in the church was because he wanted no one to be a source of distraction. And he wanted no one to be distracted from the worship of God. So again, it wasn't just what we worship, but how we worship. In fact, last Sunday, there was a sentence that Pastor Matt said in the message that I respectfully don't think is actually true. And I love Pastor Matt. I loved his message. But there is a sentence that he said that I don't think is actually true. He said, he said this, how we meet is less significant than what happens when we meet. And I think, you know, generally we can get the sense of what he's trying to say, right? But John Calvin must be rolling in his grave right now. Is it true? 
that God doesn't care as much about how we worship, but what we worship? Is it true that God doesn't care as much about our manner of worship, but only the content of our worship? Sometimes, in fact, how we worship, the manner of our worship actually demonstrates precisely what we worship. It might perhaps reveal what we have ended up worshiping all along, a God on our own terms and not a God on his. In fact, the, 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 the theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes that one reason why we Christians argue so much about which hymn to sing, which song to sing, which liturgy to follow, why, which way to worship, is that the commandments teach us to believe that bad liturgy leads to bad ethics. In other words, how we worship God shapes how we live. Some of us think, well, as long as my heart is in the right place, then it's fine showing up to youth group halfway through the second song. Or as long as my heart is in the right place, I can do this or that. I can watch Sunday service in bed. Or as long as my heart is in the right place, then I can goof off and do other stuff while attending youth group or small group. And what we don't realize is that our habits actually, and perhaps more accurately, reveal our heart attitude and our heart posture. And if we're willing to do this on Fridays and Sundays, then what about on the days when we aren't doing churchy stuff? If we're fine with distractions on Fridays and Sundays, how much more fine will we be with the distractions throughout the rest of the week when there is no accountability from the church or even this youth group? And so in fact, what happens here on Fridays and Sundays is actually more important than you realize. As I've already mentioned already, it is incredibly difficult for me to resist the urge to look at my phone while attending service. And I'm a pastor. I feel like as I get older, my attention span just weakens, not strengthens. Even though we do it all day long in class, sitting attentively through worship isn't something that comes naturally to us. But one of the neglected lessons of sitting attentively through things like sermons is how even the act of sitting attentively shapes our hearts. I mean, if you think about it, where else will we learn to sit in silence in prayer if not with the community of saints in prayer? Where else will we learn to submit our lives to the word of God if not here with the community of saints in youth group? Where else will we learn the rhythms of the Christian life if not here with the community of saints on a Friday night? The fact that we come together to sing, the way we even sit, the way we receive God's word, the way that we sit through yours truly talking to you for 45, 50 minutes straight every Friday night trains our hearts to resist our natural impulses to zone out to go on our phones, to go to multitask while spending time with one another in small groups or doing something else. If God absolutely cares about our hearts, then why wouldn't he also care about the things that shape our hearts too? If God cares that we worship him, why wouldn't he also care about how we worship him? If God cared less about how we worship, then why would the apostle Paul talk so much about building up others, not being a distraction to others, not putting attention on yourself? And if God didn't care, then why would the Apostle Paul spend four chapters, four entire chapters, talking about the manner of our worship from chapters 11 to 14, where chapter 13 serves as the pinnacle and standard for all that we do as Christians inside the church and outside? You see, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul sees the church gathering, this high school group, as more than just fellowship building with one another, but as fellowship with the living God. And if that's the case, then the Apostle Paul wants us to see how much wants to see how what we do on a Friday and a Sunday and how we do it actually does matter. It does. And so when we attend youth group together and our screens are side by side one another, are we distracting other people from the worship of God? The church is the church. The church is us. We are the church. 
But let's not forget that when we gather as a church, we gather for God. The Apostle Paul sees distraction as a form of anti-love. Because distraction doesn't build others up. In fact, it does the opposite. Distraction is a form of tearing others down. Because in distracting other people, you are tearing people's eyes away from Jesus Christ. You are turning their gaze away from him. That's what you're doing in distracting other people. That's what ultimately concerned the Apostle Paul in these three verses. It wasn't about subjugating women under, under men. That wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't even about gender or authority, but again, worship. He saw a problem in their local context, and he wanted to address it so that the church would not be distracted from, the, from their worship of God. Several years ago, my friends and I had gone to watch a movie together, um, and I happened to sit next to a friend who liked to ask questions and make comments while the movie was playing. And I seriously regretted sitting next to this person. Um, I don't know if you have friends like that or if you're like that, but that's probably the reason why I don't remember the movie that we watched and why I didn't watch, why, why I don't choose to watch movies with people anymore aside from the pandemic. But this, this friend kept talking and talking like incessantly and asking so many questions that not only was he bugging me, but also the people around him. Everyone around him was distracted from the movie. And so, the, so I think you guys can understand the, the, the logic of this illustration. The implicit question that the Apostle Paul is asking in us in these three verses is, are we doing anything that is distracting, that could distract one another from the worship of God? Now, let me get more, let me get more specific. What distractions am I actually talking about? If you are already distracted, don't bring others down with you by chatting in the Zoom chat or texting people on the side. Sometimes we think that in distracting others, we're being funny, but actually, and honestly, you're kind of just being a nuisance. And I, I know you guys have been doing Zoom school for like the past 11 months and you've, you're, you're over it. And I would be too, I, I totally sympathize. But you guys have found loopholes and ways to resist boredom. Could it be possible that the kind of things that you have learned to do while surviving Zoom school has been passed down, passed down onto how you worship God as you tune into the live stream or attend youth group? I know that some of you do youth group together in other people's homes, and I'm sure for a while that worked out great. But let me ask you something. Has that actually helped you focus as you sing, as you participate in small groups, as we sit under the preaching of God's word? Has your presence been a source of contribution or detriment to people's spiritual lives? And so if, if distractions are a form of anti-love, then what is a form of genuine love then? Let's think about the definition of distraction again. A distraction is something, or in some cases, someone who tears away our focus or de devotion from Jesus. If that's the case, then what's the opposite? If distraction tears away, then what about building up? If distraction says, how can I direct my attention toward myself or someone's attention toward, to something else? Building up says, how can I deflect attention away from myself and direct someone's attention toward Jesus Christ? I mean, that's it. That is what building up means. A more Pauline definition of building up others is that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no, may no longer be, here it is, be children. Just as the Apostle Paul calls us to do in our previous passage last week, building up is what it means to grow up and to help others grow up. And so the proper question to ask is, how can I help people grow in their love for God and others? Is there anything that I can do within my own ability to encourage others to speak well of others, to, genuine, to genuinely lift people up, to turn people's hearts toward God, to show charity and mercy and grace? 
Maybe it's simply resisting to use the chat function in the Zoom room. Maybe it's not showing up late to youth group. I mean, what about throughout the week? That's just Friday and Sundays, but what about throughout the week? What counter liturgies can we form? If we can find ways to resist boredom, then surely we can find ways to resist idolatry. Maybe we take 10 to 15 minutes, uh, 15, 10 to 15 minute breaks throughout the day to read scripture, to take a walk, to remember that we are not limitless or to simply pray. Maybe it's texting someone in your, in your small group to follow up on a conversation that you had the other, the other Friday night. Maybe it's even texting them, saying hi and letting them know that, you're, that, they're, that they're on your heart and that you're praying for them. I mean, the list can go on and on. There's so many ways in which you can actually build people up. But lest we get lost in the trees and forget the whole forest, the whole point that the Apostle Paul is making isn't only that what we worship is important, but how we worship is important. Both matter. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe that you don't have to notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes, light, print, or spelling. The perfect church service would be one where we were almost unaware of because our attention would have been on God. This is the reason why God cares about how we worship. Our thoughts will either be on God or on something else. True worship is lacking any self-awareness because our only awareness and attention will be on God. And so that's the first point. God cares about our distraction. Secondly, God cares about our, our obedience. God cares about our obedience. Take a look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Now you can tell that the Apostle Paul's words are dripping with sarcasm. And if you didn't, if you didn't, here it is. His words are dripping with sarcasm. Paul's patience is running thin. The answer that the Apostle Paul expects in verse six, in verse 36, is no. The Corinthians weren't the only ones who received the word of God. And that's the point. The Corinthians thought that they were the only exception. In fact, take a look at verses 37 to 38. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying here? The Corinthians thought, if you'll remember, this has been the problem of the Corinthians the entire time. The Corinthians thought that they were the only exception because they thought that they were spiritual. They thought they were gifted. They thought they were mature. They thought they were wise, knowledgeable. And what Paul says in verse 37 should sound familiar because at this point in the letter, he has already said it two times. Turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. In chapter 3, verse 18, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let no one deceive himself. And here it is. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That's the first time. The second time is in chapter 8, verse 2. He says this. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And then finally, in verse 36, here in our passage, he says again, uh, sorry, verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Three times. Why does the Apostle Paul repeat this three times? Why does the Apostle Paul repeat, a, 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 repeat it a third time here? It's because we think that we are wise just because we know. We think that we are mature just because we have. We think we are spiritual just because we go to a good church. We think that these are all the marks of being a strong Christian. No, according to the Apostle Paul. That's not what maturity 
wisdom or true spirituality is. But it's here and finally that the, that the Apostle Paul puts that estimation in the grave. And he reframes true wisdom, true maturity, and true spirituality to be something quite different. The true test, the true mark of true wisdom, maturity, and spirituality isn't how much you know or how much you have. It's how you obey. That's why the Apostle Paul says, if you truly are spiritual, then you would do well to acknowledge the Apostle Paul's words as coming from the word and the mouth of God. That everything the Apostle Paul has written thus far from chapter 1 to chapter 14 ultimately comes not from the pen of Paul, but from the pen, from the very pen of God. The test isn't whether you know, but whether you obey. That's what God cares about. That is what the true mark of spirituality is, of what wisdom is, what knowledge is. Because honestly, who cares if you know? I mean, anyone can know. I mean, you can just look stuff up on Google, Wikipedia, whatever you use and regurgitate it to the people that you think would be pleased by what you say. I mean, it only, I mean, if, if that, I mean, some, for, for many of us, that knowledge only means something to us if it can get people off your back or if it can get you into the right crowd. Last week, I said that Paul sees maturity as something relational, that maturity has to do with how you treat other people. And tonight, Paul sees maturity as a quality of your relationship with God the quality of your submission to God, your willingness to do what God tells you to do. In other words, maturity has two relational objects. Maturity is the quality of your relationships with other people and the quality of your relationship with God. How you treat others and how you treat God, how you love others and how you love God, how you submit to others and how you submit to God. And how is that maturity demonstrated? How is that maturity expressed? Take a look at verses 39 to 40. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I mean, if you think about it, was it really ever about prophecy or tongues to begin with in the first place? No. Maturity is expressed again and again in our obedience to God by how? By how we build one another up. I mean, that's the whole point of the gifts anyways, to build up one another by how we give of our whole selves for the sake of the other person. That's the whole point of the gifts. That's the whole point of everything that God had, of everything and anything that God has ever given to us. But the whole point of your very existence, in fact, is to mirror the God who came down to serve us. The word of the cross tells us that God did not stay in the comforts of heaven, smugly looking down at humanity from heaven. The word of the cross tells us that the true wisdom of God, Jesus Christ himself came for the weak, not for the strong. The whole movement of the cross is that the strong God became weak for us. That the strong God saw our weakness and to lift us out of our weakness and sin, he would bind himself to our weaknesses. He would become a man. The strong God would stoop to our own level and succumb to our human weakness, to identify with our human weakness and to die in that same human weakness. All for us. If you want to know what true maturity is, if you want to be mature, if you want to be wise, if you want to be strong, look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the, the strong God became weak for us. That is maturity. That is the sign of maturity. That is wisdom. That is what love is. In Jesus, maturity doesn't smugly look down at the immaturity of other people. It's quite the opposite. 
Maturity binds itself to the immature. It wraps itself with the immature in order to lift them up. That is maturity that is shaped like a cross. It's a maturity that ultimately looks like Jesus himself. And this is the only kind of maturity that God really actually only cares about. It is a maturity that obeys and imitates Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is the only kind of worship that God desires. We care about how we worship because God cares about how we worship. God cares about our distractions and he cares about our obedience. Let's pray together. Father, I think this is uh, in many ways a tough word, a challenging word for not just, I think, um, the students and the leaders here, but also a challenging word for myself because it is easy to identify uh, false pursuits of wisdom and knowledge and wisdom and immaturity. We think that maturity, wisdom, knowledge is just knowing a lot of stuff. It's knowing the right facts or belonging to the right group or whatever it is. But you 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 obliterate those categories and you you challenge those categories. You make us realize that actually maturity is obedience is simply obedience to you. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to obey, that you would help us to be submissive to you that you would help us to be submissive in how we even view, view the distractions that we have in our lives. Pray that you'd help us to challenge us, that you would wake us up from our stupor. And I also do pray that you would help us to obey. And Father, we thank you that by the spirit, you do enable us to do that. It is not as if we do it by our own sheer will, willpower. You do it by the spirit, or we do it by the spirit rather. And so Father, I do pray that even in small groups, I pray that this would be, uh, that this message would in many ways be um, a starting discussion for how we can uh, cultivate ways in which we can obey you, ways in which we can uh, resist all manners of idolatry. And so, Father, we thank you and we love you. We ask all, ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.